Do you ever wonder, where's God? Do you wonder where is God when you look around and see the world seeming to go from bad to worse? When you see Christians and Christianity being marginalized on a daily basis, do you wonder where is God? When you see evil not just being excused but institutionalized, do you wonder where is God? When you see those who occupy the seats of power who seem foolish or corrupt or both, do you wonder, where is God? When you see our nation unable to have civil disagreements anymore, do you wonder, where is God? When you see all the cultural confusion that our ch- children will inherit, do you wonder, where is God? Today we turn our attention to the book of Esther. And if you read it in one sitting, you would ask one question. Where is God? His name and the word God is entirely absent from this book. He does no miracles. He speaks no words. He gives no direction. He appears to no one. And the people of the book must have wondered, where is God? Esther lived in a world much like us. She was in exile in a strange land far from home. We both live in situations where God can seem absent and aloof. And we can wonder, where is God? In some books of the Bible, God's mighty acts are displayed with all their glittering grandeur, like in Exodus, where God is at the forefront of the action, speaking, directing, rescuing his people through miraculous works. Or in the book of Daniel, God's giving dreams, doing mighty works, writing messages on the wall, all in the sight of his people. Or in Jonah, he's appointing a great fish to eat and spit up. But in Esther, as in our lives, God is off stage. He does not, in this book, and most of the time in our, our lives, show himself with any overt acts. And we wonder, where is God? One author says this about the book of es- Esther. God is present even when he is most absent. When there are no miracles dreams or visions, no charismatic leaders, no prophets to interpret what is happening and not even explicit God talk, and he is present as deliverer. Those who, have, who, have, who, have saved by, those who are saved by signs and wonders at the Exodus, he continues to save through hidden providential control of history. His people are never simply at the mercy of blind fate or malign powers, whether human or supernatural. You see, the book of Esther is going to help us notice the small, quiet providences of our God. Because most of the time, God works His will in our lives in the quiet procession of achingly normal events. 
And this book will help us notice God's hand in the ordinariness of life. You see, the Lord delights to show his power in the quiet procession of normal events. Even when events on their surface bear no mark of his working. Charles Spurgeon said this, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And friends, if there's one thing we know today, it's this, we can trust the heart of God. We know God loves his people. He loves us to the end and beyond. Most of our lives, we will not understand what he is even doing. But as the book of Esther tells, he is most assuredly working in ways we couldn't understand even if he explained it to us. So for the next ten weeks, we will travel together to the ancient empire of the Medio persians to learn about our lives in 21st century America. This journey is for anyone who wonders, where is God? Our goal is audacious. It's weekly to see the invisible hand of God in our lives. Before we jump in, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us. I pray that you would open up our hearts so that we might see your working in our lives even when we don't even seem to notice it. I pray, Lord, that you would build in us a trust that you are working, you are acting, you are, you are preserving, and you are doing things we don't understand. I pray you'd help me be faithful as I preach this morning. And in your name we pray, amen. So if you haven't already, make it to the book of Esther. Esther's about 40% of the way through the Bible. It's after Ezra and Nehemiah. You can open up to Psalms, maybe, and go left, past Job and his stupid friends, and you get to Esther, chapter 1. And so, now next week, we're going to meet Esther and Mordecai. And let me tell you, they are not what you might think. But today, in Esther, chapter 1, we are treated to an internal Persian soap opera. Now, Esther is a biblical narrative, and in biblical narratives, the author merely reports what happened, not what should have happened. He does not provide commentary, and he gives no opinion about what happened. So we, as the readers, must draw the right conclusions with the story we are given. Now, one other thing. Most scholars, all biblical scholars, agree that the funniest book of the Bible is Esther. Because it's a story of reversals and irony. And so we're going to see some of that this morning. Because we're meant to laugh at the futility of people who oppose God. So let's watch for the invisible hand of God. What I'm going to do is we're just going to walk through chapter 1 and try to understand what's going on. Verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. 
the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his, glo- of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. One hundred and eighty days. Now, Ahasuerus is better known to us by the Greek name Xerxes. He's Xerxes. And so as we join him here in Susa, this is about five centuries before the coming of Christ. And this man, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, is at the top of the world. He is the sole leader of the world's only superpower. He has an empire larger to this point than any in recorded history. He is fabulously wealthy, and he's able to host a feast for all of the empire's power brokers for six months non-stop. That's more than all you can eat at Golden Corral. He's the king of the world, and he wants to show everybody. And so with having this feast, what he's doing is he's trying to buy his subjects off. He's trying to say, listen, I am so fabulously wealthy, so fabulously powerful, that I can feed you for six months straight. Who can do this? Well, only Ahasuerus, of course. And he's flexing on everybody. And so after this 180 days are complete, he invited all the common folk to come and have a meal with him for seven days, a whole week. They're going to enjoy some of the fun too. So, verse 5. And when these days were completed, that's the party with everybody who's important, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white, curtain, white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and the drinking according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now imagine this. If you're a common person, we would be common people in this land. All of us would be living with, in our homes with dirt floors. And you walk in and you find that this floor is made of marble, mother of pearl, precious stones, porphyry, which is probably really cool, but I don't even know what that is. But that is what we walk on. And as they walk in, we see opulence unlike they, unlike they could imagine. And they drank from golden chalices. The, the, the common rabble are drinking from golden chalices, and each of the golden chalices are intricately designed and completely different. They hold in their hands as they continue to ask for more and more wine, they hold a golden chalice that was worth more than everything they had in the world. And they're drinking alcohol out of it. The king who fancied himself king of the world even made a decree of the drinking. There is no compulsion, which means drink as much as you want. Go for it. And they went for it. The king wanted to control everything, notice, even down to what they drank. And this is the first sign that the empire runs on the king and his orders. Now comes some action. Verse 9. Queen Vashti 
also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. It's in a different area, different part. The men were outside, the women inside. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now that's a clue something's about to go down. Merry with wine is raging drunk. Not blackout drunk, but raging drunk, okay? So on the last day of the feast, this is seven days of eating, drinking, eating, drinking, eating, drinking, getting drunk, having a hangover, continuing to eat and drink, and going and going and going, when the whole company is good and drunk. And not only that, this is a crowd of men. So this is a crowd of drunk men. It's like a frat party. Now, it must be said, all of us men who know, it must be said, especially if you play sports, even at the best of times, we men in crowds don't make the best decisions. When women are not around, the conversation is not exactly always edifying. And all the men in this room can nod their heads and just say that. I mean, there's lots of different times when I remember my mom would say, well, why did you guys do that? It seemed like a good idea at the time. Whose idea was that? I don't know. Why did you do it? I don't know. Everybody else did. Now, add alcohol to the mix. <laughs> and we have, the, we have a recipe for wonderfully bad ideas. And so, if men in general are prone, when they're in small groups, not Christian, to bad ideas or big groups for close, in close quarters for seven days, how much more drunk men? Well, they're prone for a really bad decision. So we have a drunk king who decides, I'm going to call my seven eunuchs, and I'm going to tell them to go get my wife. So verse 10, he's married with wine. He commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Why? In order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's, deliver, at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Now, I didn't know this, but it turns out that every biblical scholar has anything to say on Esther, loves guessing why Vashti didn't come. I don't think it's all that complex, but I was enjoying reading all the different things that people said, well, here's the reason Vashti didn't come. One person said, well, she's the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar, and she considered herself the legitimate heir to the throne, not Xerxes, so she wouldn't come. Mm, I don't think so. Others said she resented being called Vashti the queen rather than Queen Vashti because she was, there was a former declaration implied that her title was of secondary importance and that Ahasuerus merely saw her as a commoner elevated to the throne. I don't think so. Somebody said, Vashti had leprosy or a contagious skin condition, and she was embarrassed and didn't want to be ridiculed. I don't think so. The most creative is this. The angel Gabriel caused a tail to grow on Vashti, and she was embarrassed. That's what I thought, too. And the Jewish scholar said the king expected Vashti to appear with her crown on, and only that. I think that gets a little bit closer to why she said no. Regardless of what's going on, we know why the king called her. 
He wanted to display her as property. What did he want to do? Verse 11. He wanted, the, he wanted to bring the, king with her, the queen with her royal crown in order to what? Show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The king wanted his wife to come out to be leered at by a bunch of drunken men. Is that a good husband or a bad husband? Bad. No wonder she didn't go. Good job, Vashti. You don't go to that party. He wanted to show off Vashti to prove, and by showing her off, he wanted to show she's part of mine as well. She's my trophy wife. What kind of husband would subject his wife to a rabble of intoxicated men. A fool. A fool. This isn't the first time Xerxes will show himself to be a complete and utter buffoon. Vashti does not come. And the king is not pleased. Verse 12. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. These are the leading counselors. Think a combination between the joint chiefs and the cabinet rolled into one. These are the men and the, 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 men and the only ones who had access the, to the king whenever they wanted. They were the power brokers in all the land. They were the only ones who were able to come in and talk to the king whenever they wanted without asking for permission. Just as the eunuchs were named one by one, each of these men are named one by one, and they're supposed to be people who knew the times. So whenever we read something in a narrative, we have to ask, now why, why is the author telling us all of these people's names? Why? Why would he name all seven counselors? Why would he name all seven eunuchs? Well, the king was important enough to have all sorts of people attending his needs and his whims. He had seven eunuchs and seven counselors, but it was just a hollow display of self-importance. The author is telling us there's a whole lot of pomp going on, but not a lot of circumstance. These seven eunuchs couldn't compel the queen. And these seven men who supposedly knew the time did not know what time it was, and they're about to give him some seriously boneheaded advice. Back to the king. Verse 15, he presents the problem to his seven counselors. According to the law, verse 15, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Back to the law. You see the irony? Here's a king. Here's the king of the world. And his own wife doesn't do what he wants. How powerful is he really? He needs couples counseling, not legal advice. Instead, he asks his friends, 
that aren't his friends for legal advice. Someone needed to stand up and say, hey, bro, listen, it's a bad move to try to make your wife come out in front of a group of drunken men. Do you see how this was kind of a bad idea? But of course, none of them do that. And so Mimikin and the boys come up with some spectacularly bad advice. Verse 16. Then Mimikin said, to the, in the presence of the king and the officials, <laughs> this is so stupid. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ohasuerus. Really? Because she didn't want to come out in front of her, his drunken friends? She did wrong against them? Well, he goes on. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will see King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Now that's some grade-A stupidity right there, friends. Pure stupidity. And the king laps it right up. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, word of Vashti's treachery is going to get out to all 2.1 million square miles of the empire and up in the social order that we have here in the Medo-Persian Empire. If Vashti can treat the king with contempt, all women everywhere in our 127 provinces will do the same to their husbands. This is a crisis of epic proportions. Wrong, actually. It's not. But Memukin doesn't know, doesn't know what's up. And the king eats it up. And so Memukin comes up with another plan. Now, I, I have never seen a molehill that I've known of, but I have seen many mountains transformed into molehills, and that's exactly what's happening here. Memukin is supposed to be the one who knows the time, but he, he doesn't. This is a giant overreach. And here comes the overreaction. Verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king, is proclaimed all through, throughout all his kingdom. For it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, number 127, to every, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So, for those of you scoring at home, what happened? The king calls Vashti. She doesn't come. His officials come and say, listen, if word gets out about this, everybody's going to disrespect their husbands, and they're going to disrespect you, king, because Vashti has done this against us. And so, what should they do in that moment? They should just say, listen, bro, let's sleep, sweep this under the rug and nobody needs to know. But instead, what do they do? 
They decide to write down what happened in everybody's language all around the provinces, that all, of, all throughout 127 provinces, to make known what happened. So instead of something that was just a rumor that could be quashed, now, on official Medo-Persian letterhead, we have the story of the king's shame. So that everybody knew. They were fools. They were doing something stupid and pointless. What could have been kept quiet was broadcast by these morons to the whole empire. They announced with their own mouth that Xerxes has a wife that doesn't listen to him. And further, they wrote it in everybody's language so everybody could understand. It was stupid, but it was also pointless. Do you think a law passed that says, women, listen, give honor to your husbands? Do you think that's going to have the effect of them giving honor to their husbands? No. They might as well have said, women, laugh at your husbands because that's what we know you're all going to do. And laugh at the king while you're at it. This is a law that can't be enforced. A declaration from the king cannot revolutionize and stabilize Medo-Persian households. See, the whole affair is pointless and thus ends chapter 1. We haven't yet met Mordecai or Esther or Haman. They're all coming later. Instead, we are treated to a close-up look at the inner workings of a sophomoric Persian court. Why? See, when you read Esther chapter 1, you've got to ask, why is this here? The author wants us to see the foolish, petty, impulsive King Xerxes in vivid relief. He might have an empire of 127 provinces spread from sea to shining sea, but he had trouble at home. And as this story unfolds, we need to remember that Xerxes was nothing more than a pompous blowhard who had way more power than brains. He is going to play the fool throughout. And people are going to play him. Second, we need to see what happened in the Persian court that it would eventually allow an anonymous Jewish girl to rise to queen of the entire realm. And in rising to queen, she would be able to turn the heart of this foolish king to save the Jewish people. But that's a story for future sermons. What are we to take away from Esther chapter 1 today. Remember what we said at the beginning? We wondered, where is God? It doesn't appear that God is anywhere on these pages or in these verses in chapter 1 of Esther. And we said we want to see the invisible hand of God in our lives. Here's what we can see from this passage. First, there's, I have two thoughts, but the big idea is this. God is working even and we might even say especially when you cannot see it. God is working even, and we can say especially when you cannot see it. Two thoughts as we close. God is always working, but rarely explaining. God is always working, but rarely explaining. We 
are able to see the hand of God in Esther because we can look and see the story and know that all of these coincidences cannot be explained in any other way but God organizing things in this fashion. God does not stop and explain what's happening in the book of Esther. We are left to watch and look and see and know that the Lord is organizing these, <coughs> these events in such a way so that she would be elevated to queen. And the same is true for us. We can easily see the hand of the war- Lord in the Bible, but not always in our lives. Friends, our Lord is not limited in w- in work- by working in ways that we can understand. In fact, when difficult things happen, when confusion sets in, when he, sees, when he seems most remote, we need to remember God is always working, but rarely explaining. I said rarely explaining because often things happen to us and we live our lives never knowing why. I say he's rarely explaining because he does make clear the most important thing. And I'll tell you what I mean. We may not be able to discern his hand in our lives, but we can surely know his love. The challenge we face in our lives is when we wonder, where is God? He's not going to stop and explain all the ways he's working in our lives. He's not going to pull us over by the hand and say, hey, listen, I just want you to see and understand why this is happening. <clears throat> he's not going, to, he's not going to, to stop and make sure that we know each and every disappointment has a purpose. But instead, from the pages of scriptures, we know he shouts from the rooftops for those who have ears to hear his love. How? In Christ. Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when Christ died, the Lord did not stop and explain why. His closest followers were left bewildered and aimless, and it was only later that they understood. You may not be able to understand why you are sick, why you lost your job, why you are alone, why you are depressed, and why you're overwhelmed. But Christian, there is one thing you can know for sure. These things are not evidence that he does not love you. Nothing could be more clear. Despite all the ways this world is declining, there is one thing that does not change, and that is him and his love. I would rather have a clear explanation and display of his love than a clear explanation of why things are happening in my life. Because I probably wouldn't be able to understand anyway. This is why we're fixed on Jesus. There are so many things that happen to us that we will never understand. I know many of you walk in today facing difficult and weighty things. Burdens you carry around wherever you go. And sometimes that burden can feel so dark and scary and ominous and like it sticks closer to you than your shadow. Sometimes you might even feel that darkness seeping into the depths of your soul. And you perpetually live on the border of despair. See, this is where, why, where and why we need to be fixed on Jesus. We, we need not to expect that he will explain himself in the details of our lives. Otherwise, we will be perpetually troubled. But as we focus on Jesus, as we focus on him, 
As we look to Him, we can know for sure and for certain that God is working. Friend, there are some things that you have endured that only the Lord will be able to explain to you. And one day when you see Him, you will understand. But this is not that day. In these days, there are a great many things we don't understand why. But when we fix ourselves on Jesus, we're not just saying that we know He loves us and stands back. No. When we see Jesus, we see Him stooping to help us in our pain. We know that because He loves us, He is working in our lives for our good. We just do not understand how. So we can say, though I'm sick, God loves me and He's working. Though I've lost my job, God loves me and He is working. Though I'm alone, God loves me and He is working. Though I'm depressed, God loves me and He's working. Though I'm overwhelmed, God loves me and He is working. Even if we can't see it. Christian, God is always working in you. Even through you. But rarely explaining. Now, if you're not a Christian, God is not working for you. But He can. All it takes is to humble yourself, trust that as a sinner, Jesus is the only way you can experience life and meaning and hope. Any Christian you know can explain this to you. But there is hope. There can be hope for you. Because anyone, no matter what they've done, no matter what you've done, to separate yourself from Him, anyone can be accepted to Jesus by Jesus because He holds His arm open, ready to receive you. Christians, God is working. God is working even when we can't see it. He's always working. He's rarely explaining. And secondly, do not fear. Do not fear, though you do not understand how he's working. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We know from the pages of Scripture that our God is working. And Christian, you can know for sure that he is working tirelessly, continually, and without fail, personally for you. And if he is, why are we afraid? What power can thwart his purpose for you? None. What evil do we face alone? None. What darkness can make you miss God's will? Doesn't exist. What malignancy can stop God's hand? It doesn't. What corruption can destroy you? None. What pressure can pull you from Him? None. What power can overpower Him? None. Friend, you have no reason to be afraid. More than that, we Christians have every reason for confidence. The Lord is with us. The Lord is on our side. More importantly, we are on His side. 
We have nothing to fear. We may not be able to explain everything that's happening to us. We may not be able to explain everything that's happening in the world, but we know the heart of God. And we know that we do not have to be afraid. Though we don't know what tomorrow holds, we know that tomorrow our God will still be working in ways that we don't understand. But we can trust ourselves and entrust ourselves to Him knowing that He's going to make all things work together for His glory. And we do not have to be afraid. One of the ways, and we're going to see this throughout the book of Esther, that God works most powerfully is through corrupt institutions. Take this empire that we're going to be introduced to, the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a rat's nest of intrigue, and the Lord uses it to save his people. There's even more. The Lord uses a shockingly imperfect queen and her foolish uncle to save a people. How? Well, that starts next week. We don't have to be afraid. This world is dark, and we may not be on the cusp of a new and dark day in our country. We may face challenges our ancestors couldn't have dreamed of, We may stare down frightful foes. We may yet witness great trouble in our country. We may have a hazardous road before us. We may have to defy government officials at some point. We may face hate from the world because we have love for Jesus. We may face a great many challenges, but we do not have to be afraid. The world is getting dark and darker, but we have a light that has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Take heart. Though we might not see how he is working, we can know for sure and for certain he is. And when you can't see it, when you don't know, when it's invisible to you, that's a sure sign stuff's going on. Buckle up and get ready. God's moving. He's working. Trust him. Because God works even, maybe even especially, when we can't see it. Friend, we don't have to be afraid. We have every reason for confidence. Our Lord is doing a work in our day, as he told one of the prophets, that we wouldn't believe if he told us. And he's not going to tell us. But we can trust his heart, knowing that he will work in and through us, and we're going to be okay. Because God works even when we can't see it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us confident, not arrogant. Confident, Lord. Confident in you, not arrogant in our ability or our strength. Because we have no ability and strength apart from you. But Lord, I pray we would be confident. I pray, Lord, that you would instill us with the confidence that you are working, Lord. I'm grateful that you are able to work and do and direct the affairs of this world without my consultation. 
I'm grateful that you are able to work in and through corrupt organizations and, in, and institutions. I'm grateful that there is no power on earth that can separate me from you. I'm grateful, Lord, that your church has the promise that we will withstand whatever comes our way. Your church has the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail. Lord, it can be tempting to look at the landscape of the world that we live in and be hopeless and down. But Lord, direct our eyes to you so that we might see. If we can look and see who, what you've done for us in Christ, we can know for sure and for certain that you are going to work in and through us in this dark and these dark moments. I pray that we would be a faithful church though we be exiles and away from home. I pray we would be a faithful church, ready to testify to the grandeur of our God. I pray that we would be a confident church, confident not in our strength or ability, but confident in you and your working, confident that you have a plan. Thank you, Lord, that your plan, you don't need us. Lord, we want to see you work in our day. We want to see your hand move. We want to see this, but I pray you would give us eyes to see your invisible hand move around, move things around in our world. And all the while, may we fix ourselves on you. I pray for those that are discouraged. I pray for those that are afraid. I pray for those that are wondering, where are you, Lord? I pray that they would see you are right here with us, working and acting and loving and protecting and defending. It's in your name, Jesus, that we give thanks and pray. Amen.